This morning's gospel reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that was ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord.
As we turn our attention to our sermon text from Matthew chapter 2, let me ask you two orienting questions. Think about this. What is it about Jesus' kingship that threatens you? And what is it about his kingship that attracts you? Or put it differently, what is it about Jesus being king over all things crosses you? Challenges something about your natural will and you don't like it. Or on the other hand, how does Jesus' kingship over all things give you dignity and beauty that you so desperately need? Let's think about those things this morning. Let me begin by praying for us. Father, we thank you that uh, at Christmas you sent your son Jesus to become human for us. But not just any kind of human, to become our king. And so we pray this morning as we think through his kingship that you would uh, work on our hearts by your grace. Help us to learn from your word, to change us, to love Jesus because he is our king and not be threatened by him. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Did you ever uh, stop to consider why we actually give gifts at Christmas? Where did it start? Well, it started in this text, which was just read. The very first gifts that were given on Christmas were these three magi, or it was translated wise men. And so that tradition, giving gifts to each other, started way back then, and it's continued all the way up through this past Tuesday this year. But I want to think with, with you for a minute about the reasons why we give gifts, the reasons of the heart behind we, the way we give gifts. So think about it this way. I would suggest to you there are probably three reasons why you gave gifts this Christmas. One is out of a heart of love, is you love the other person and you give a gift to communicate your love. And it doesn't actually matter what the gift is, right? It's the thought behind the gift that counts. That's one way in which we give. But another way in which we give is we give out of fear. And this is how it works. Oh my goodness, my Aunt Betty is going to give me this kind of gift. I can't be outdone by her gift giving. So I need to give a gift that's appropriate, right? There's a fearful nature of gift giving that, that maybe it happened to you this Christmas. Or a third way we give is a gift of manipulation. We think, if I give this gift, then I will get that gift. It's a heart of manipulation. And I think probably, if we're all honest, we probably gave out of all three of those motives this Christmas. But the point I'm trying to make is whatever gift you give, it's always attached to the orientation of your heart. You give a gift, and it's expression of what's in your heart. Now let's reverse it and think about this. What happens when God gives his greatest gift to us in his son Jesus on that first Christmas? He gives the world's greatest gift that could ever be given, but Jesus is a particular kind of gift to us and to the world. Specifically, we'll see in this text that he is a king. He's the world's king. And when the world's king comes, that means all people need to give him their full allegiance. And that challenges the orientation of our heart, doesn't it? What are you going to do with him? If Jesus is a king that is going to represent you before the Father unless you're eternally lost, how do you respond to him? What does your heart do with him? What kind of gifts and talents are due him that you must offer back to him? So in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23, I suggest that this is the central theme of this passage. As our representative king, Jesus either threatens you 
or he attracts you. As our representative king, Jesus either attracts us or he threatens us. So when you see him for clearly for who he is, there really are only two options. Either you're going to be repelled by him because his kingship is a threat to your own personhood or your own autonomy, or he attracts you by his grace. And I want to look at this main theme, this idea of Jesus as our king either threatening or attracting us in three ways this morning. And we're going to look at it according to the three main characters in our, te- in our passage. Who are they? Herod, the Magi, or what's translated here, the wise men, and the Christ child. So the three main characters will consider each in turn. Herod, the Magi, and then the Christ child. When we look at Herod, what do we discover? Jesus' kingship threatens our egos. Jesus' kingship threatens our egos when we look at Herod. We learn a lot about Herod in this passage, but let me give you a little background about this guy. Uh, His name was Herod the Great because he was a military uh, mastermind. He was a builder. He built up cities in Palestine. uh, And he was very deceitful and egotistic. So much so that just about this time in history, just before Jesus was born, he was so concerned about maintaining rule that he had his favorite wife and three of his sons executed because he was afraid they were usurping his throne. This is the kind of guy that we're dealing with. So imagine what happens when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem inquiring about the birth of who? The king of the Jews, which was actually a title that Herod had claimed for himself. He claimed that he was the king of the Jews. So what happens in verse 3? Look at this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Well, they were troubled because they recognized, whoa, this is significant. So already we see that Jesus presents a threat to Herod's kingship. God's long-promised Messiah, which that Hebrew idea is translated into English as Christ, So the long-promised Christ had been born, and therefore Herod's kingship was in jeopardy. And so what does Herod do? He concocts this plan, consistent with his suspicious egoism. Look at verse 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Well, of course, this is a deception, right? We know right away that he's not going to worship Christ. He wants to find out where he's going to be so that ultimately he can have him executed. And we see this later in the passage when he orders the murder of all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old or younger. And that atrocity is described in verse 16, which historically that's, that atrocity has been named the slaughter of the innocents. And it sounds horrific, and it is. Any death of a child is always horrific. But historically, we know that that was probably about only 20 uh, boys that were killed at that time, which is based on the population in and around the region of Bethlehem at that time. Now, that doesn't diminish the horror of the event, but I do want to put it in context for you that it wasn't hundreds or thousands of children. But also, as by way of application at this point, it also reminds us that Christmas wasn't and isn't the end of evil and darkness in our world. Lots of joy come into the world because the Christ child is born, but it doesn't extinguish the darkness. 
Rather, light comes into our darkness. And some of you know this really well. This season of Christmas actually hasn't been very joyful for you. Maybe it's been kind of sad and dark because you're grieving the death of a loved one. You're lamenting being alone again. You're, you're wishing things were different. And so this Christmas season has actually been sad and dark and maybe even a bit evil for you. And the good news then is that Jesus comes in to bring light into your sadness. Look, look at what Matthew does here in using this commentary uh, from Jeremiah in verses 17 and 18. Look at these verses in 17, 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now Matthew is quoting from Jeremiah 31, 15. And he's doing two things at once with this quotation. He's saying, lament to the darkness and sadness to the Lord in the context of hope. If we were to go back and look at Jeremiah 31, the only negative and sad verse in the entire chapter is this one that's quoted. The rest of the chapter is joy and delight that the Lord is going to take his people's sadnesses and turn them into joy. So what this says to us is that if you feel if you felt like you've been more in the darkness this Christmas season, then what do we do? We speak that sadness to the Lord, lament it. And then we look to the light which has appeared. For Jesus' birth is connected to his life. And that's connected to his death. And that's connected to his resurrection. And that's connected to his coming again when he puts all things right and wipes away our tears and makes them into joys. But let's think a little bit more about Herod. Let's make it even more personal because... Uh, Herod is, yes, a tyrant, but actually he's not that different than each one of us. You see, Herod might be different in degree, but he's not different in kind from us. We all have little Herods in our hearts. And what I mean by that is that you and I care a whole lot about our own private kingdoms. We want what we want when we want it. We love our insular kingdoms of self. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples of how this works. Uh, for about three years, I, I used to meet with this guy who would have, been, he would have described himself as an atheist who became agnostic and was dabbling with theism. We talk about uh, faith and theology and science and things like that. And after about two years of conversations, one day we were talking about the gospel and, I, and we were talking about this future hope of Jesus' return to put all things right. And this is what he said to me in response. He said, Seth, that sounds really hopeful and really great. And I almost want to believe it. But then I would have to admit that Jesus is Lord. And I just don't want to do that. Did you get it? He intellectually could assent, in one sense, to a historical Jesus who died for our sins and rose again and was coming again. But he couldn't go the next step to say, I submit my own kingdom to Christ's kingdom, that he is Lord over me. Now, some of you might be in that place this morning. That's a good place to kind of think about. 
But when he said that to me, I was both saddened on one hand because I wanted to see this guy come to Jesus. But it was also really convicting and sobering for me because I realized, wait a minute, that's exactly what I do too. That's what you do as well. You see, every time I'm stingy with my time, every time I'm grumpy with my wife, every time I'm angry at my kids, every time I have a racist or sexist or prejudicial thought in my mind, every time I look away from the poor, what am I doing? I love myself and my own kingdom of self more than I love Jesus and his kingdom. You see, we do have little Herods in our hearts. And if we live a life that's totally consumed with self, then what will eventually happen? Well, we will become tyrannical. So then what can begin or continue to rescue us from our own idolatry to the kingdom of self? How can Jesus' kingship become something we love, something we live for? Well, we see that next in the Magi. In the Magi, we'll see an example of embracing Jesus as king in love. Well, so far we've seen by looking at Herod that Jesus' kingship can threaten our egos. But second, by looking at the Magi, we'll see that Jesus, the king, attracts us with his grace. Jesus, the king, attracts us with his grace. And we look at the Magi, I want to look look at it in two parts. I want to look at the attraction of grace on one hand and then the response to grace on the other. The attraction of grace. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or what could be translated magi, the Greek word there is magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, this is a very, very common story for probably most of us here, many of us here. But there are two misconceptions right away that I want to address that you may have in your mind that are really important so we understand what's going on here. Misconception number one. The Magi weren't honorable, wise kings from Persia who represented the best wisdom of the nations. That's not who they were historically. Magi, as the name implies, were what? Magicians. They were astrologers, sorcerer-type people. If you're Harry Potter fans, they like practice the dark arts in that sense. Who advised Persian kings. Think about like the sorcerers in the time of Pharaoh in ancient Egypt that served Pharaoh and did sorcery. That's who these guys were. And every time in the whole Bible where magic or sorcery or divination is talked about, it is roundly condemned as a pagan practice that is at odds with the sovereignty and all-powerful nature of God who orders all things. So if you were living in the first century and you were a Jewish person or a first century Christian, you would have been predisposed to disregard and condemn men like the Magi outright. And so if that's who they were, then think about how this highlights God's grace to people. Because his grace, God doesn't, didn't choose, as the very first eyewitnesses to, to his son, he didn't choose Jewish insiders who were moral goodies. He didn't choose the powerful. He chose the farthest out outsiders to testify 
to this, his son coming as king. And that's really good news for you. Because have you ever felt like an outsider? Have you ever felt spiritually bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt and morally corrupt and shameful and sinful? Have you ever felt like that? Jesus comes for you. On the flip side, if you're self-righteous, if you're confident in your own moral religion, if you're uh, captivated by the American dream so much they don't care about anyone else, if you have so many possessions you don't even think about how spiritually bankrupt you really are, then watch out. Jesus comes for outsiders, those who know they need a savior. And that's really great news, that God has this particular love for sinners weighed down in our sin, and we know we can't dig our way out. He has love for us, and he beckons us to himself. Uh, one of my professors, Dr. Guthrie, had a great illustration of this idea of how, how God summons us to Christ. He said uh, one day in class, he got up from his desk and walked in the middle of the classroom. So kind of pretend, you know, we're all sitting around here. He moves in the middle of the classroom and he said, Jesus isn't just a God who loves us and says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He does that, but he does more. Imagine we're over there and Jesus says this to us, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for our souls, for your souls. Do you get it? Jesus doesn't just call us himself. He comes to us. He embraces us. Those of us who are moral outsiders, who desperately need grace. That's part of the attraction of grace. But also, uh, grace is, uh, in Scripture, is always attached to real things that happen, tangible things that happen. So a second misconception that you might have, particularly if you're a kind of skeptical person or maybe if you're a scientist or scientifically oriented, is a second misconception you might have is you might think, well, hey, this story of a movable star is a great, a great legendary story. That's a, that's a nice thing that Matthew uh, wrote to celebrate the birth of Christ. Well, if you're a Christian who believes in the sovereignty of God and a God who created all things and in a God who can do miracles, then of course God could have created some kind of movable star that guided the Magi. Or, interestingly enough, he could have planned an astronomical event in the universe to coincide with the actual birth of his son. And so there's a very plausible astronomical event that happened in 7 BC, we have in ancient records a, a record of the triple conjunction of the planets Saturn and Jupiter within the star field of the constellation Pisces. And what that meant is three times in 7 BC, May 29th, September 29th, December 5th, Saturn and Jupiter, looking from the Earth into the night sky, looked like they were merging. And when two, two planets look like they're merging from the Earth... Do you know what that does? An incredibly, incredibly bright-looking star. Moreover, in ancient mythology, those two planets represented the Westland, the um, kingship, and the constellation Pisces represented the last days of the last time. 
So imagine if you were these astrologers in ancient Palestine, ancient uh, Persia, and you saw this phenomenon in the night sky, and you were reading it, what would you think? We're in the last days. In the West Land, which to you would be Palestine, a king is going to be born. And so you go where? To the capital of that region, which was Jerusalem. Now, the point I'm simply trying to make is this, is that if you're a skeptical person, there is a very good historical, plausible explanation for it this astronomical event at the time when Jesus was born. The Bible is based in good history. If you're a a Christian who has confidence in Scripture, this is just another example of how history confirms again and again the events of Scripture. You see, grace is connected historically. But now let's turn and think about the response to grace. Specifically, Specifically, how do the Magi respond to the Christ child? Well, look at verses 10 and 11. 10 and 11. When they, the Magi, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So here we discover the appropriate response to meeting King Jesus. What is it? Joy. Worship. And giving him gifts. They give kingly gifts to him. These things which were of great worth. When we, uh, when our hearts are captivated, what do we naturally do? We give gifts. And so here we see that what the Magi have sought all their lives, this wisdom they've sought, they've finally found in the Christ child. And so for us, think about this. What have you sought for all your life? What's that one thing that you've sought for all your life? What will only finally and be fully found in Jesus? And if you're still searching for that one thing, maybe this morning that come to Christ by faith. But if you do say, Jesus is king, then you know what I'm talking about. In Jesus, you found your joy that can't be extinguished no matter what the suffering you go through. In Jesus, you found a new disposition of will to say, I want to live for him. I want to give my life for him. I want to live for his kingdom. And then we can employ our gifts and talents and resources, the best of whatever you have, in the service to the world in the name of Jesus. You know, I love the Christmas carol in the bleak midwinter, which is originally a poem by Christina Rossetti. Listen to the final stanza of this poem. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yes, what can I give him? Give my heart. When grace floods in, we give our hearts. And then we express that by having joy, by having allegiance for Christ, by serving him with our gifts and abilities. Well, how does that heart change come about? What happens by believing that Jesus is our loving king that is coming and has come to make us new, to give us new names? We've seen so far that Jesus' kingship can threaten us. Second, we've seen that Jesus can attract us with his grace. But third and finally, by looking at the Christ child, we'll see that Jesus the king represents us in his suffering to give us a new name. 
Jesus the King represents us in his suffering to give us a new name. And we, we find this by observing how Jesus is spoken of and, and, connect, and connected to and responded to in this passage. And Matthew is highlighting a couple specific things about Jesus. One of them is that Jesus is actually a suffering human for us. So he empathizes with us in our suffering. When you look at verses 13 through 15 and then 19 through 23, it's really interesting to observe what Jesus is called. He's called Jesus once. He's called Christ once. He's called Son once. But nine times he's called the child. The king of the universe comes down and he's called the child. What's Matthew doing? He's highlighting how utterly human Jesus became. How vulnerable he was to whatever life was to offer. You know, uh, in, in this church, we have, there's babies born like every week. When was the last time you held one of those little ones in your arms? Or held like a, you know, a, a one-month-old in your arms? Recently, I held a, a two-month-old little boy, and I just thought, man, he's so cute, but he's so vulnerable and utterly dependent upon his parents for everything. Now, think about holding that little baby in, in your arms whenever the last time was. Jesus was just like that. The king of the universe the all-sovereign one became so human that he was utterly vulnerable and dependent upon his mother Mary and his father Joseph providing for him. The point being that Jesus becomes like us in our humanity so he can understand us, represent us, and empathize with us. Even more than that, he becomes a refugee. Now, there actually could be someone who actually is a refugee here this morning. But in our world, there are so many refugees. Think about that, that Jesus can empathize with the vulnerability of a refugee and a displaced people. So much so that after Jesus returns, after Herod dies and Herod's son Archelaus is on the throne, uh, Joseph re relocates his family. He doesn't go back to Bethlehem. But he brings them to Nazareth, which is 65 miles north of Jerusalem. Galilee is uh, south of Jerusalem, about 10 miles. So they, they travel way far north to protect his family. And in verse 23, we read this. Look at verse 23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, Nazareth didn't even exist in the Old Testament period. It's this little place that's like a nowhere place. So the prophecy that Matthew is speaking of here is not uh, specifically one place in the Old Testament. Rather, Matthew is picking up a theme from various passages about the messianic hope and the coming of the Messiah. And it's this particular theme that the Christ who would come wouldn't just be a king, he would be a suffering king. And he would, wouldn't really come from anywhere important. So perhaps the most famous prophecy related to the Christ child is Isaiah 53 related to this kind of suffering. Listen to Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So when Matthew says that Jesus shall be called a Nazarene, that is an epithet. It's a derogatory title about Jesus. So in a similar way, when Philip introduced Nathanael to Jesus later on in Jesus' life in John chapter 1, do you know what Nathanael's response was? Can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, calling Jesus a Nazarene is like saying, he shall be called a nobody who will amount to nothing from a nowhere place. Now think about that for you. Some of you feel like nobodies, or at least all of us can remember what it felt like to be a nobody. Or have you been the the recipient of very vicious speech, racist speech, sexist speech? You've ever been verbally abused? I, I mean, there are people in here this morning who know that firsthand right away. Jesus understands you. He knows what it's like to be a nobody. From his very birth, he was a nobody. In his entire life, he was one who was despised and received vicious speech. You see, Jesus comes as a nobody so he can connect with all of us and therefore represent us in his suffering before the Father, but for a specific purpose, to give us a new name. He empathizes with us, represents us to give us a new name. Look at verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew quotes here from Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt I called my son. And if we were to go back and look at Hosea 11, and we read that verse, we wouldn't necessarily think, wait a minute, this is talking about Jesus. Because in that original context, it was referring to God's redemption of ancient Israel out of Egypt, bringing them out of the tyranny of Pharaoh into uh, the Exodus event. And guess what God did in that event? He gave Israel a new name, which was God's son. You can look it up in Exodus. God doesn't call Israel his son until after the Exodus event. So in other words, ancient Israel becomes God's beloved collective son. So what's going on here? Why is Matthew choosing this passage and saying it's talking about Jesus? Well, I want you to think about these resonances with me. Just like Israel's forefathers went down into Egypt for aid and finally returned to the land of Israel, so too did Jesus. Just like Herod was like Pharaoh, Jesus is like Moses. Just like God rescued Israel from the tyranny of the old Pharaoh in the old Exodus and called Israel his collective son, so now is Jesus the new Moses surviving the tyranny of Herod. And what does he do in his birth? He inaugurates a new exodus, and God declares that Jesus is his son before all the world in his birth. So then who are we in the story? 
We are the new Israel, the new people of God. Jesus is our Moses, our king, leading us forward in a new exodus, in a new identity, that we are now sons and daughters of God. Jesus is leading us forward in redemption. You see, for just as Jesus would go down into Egypt... He would die upon the cross and go down into the grave for our sin. But just as God would call Jesus up and out of Egypt, he would call Jesus up and out of the grave in resurrection. So that the Apostle Paul could say in Romans 1, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he could say about us in Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. Jesus comes at Christmas to begin a new redemption, to give us a new name. And what are our new names? Sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters of Christ. So that God loves us just like he loves his son. That's incredible. So let's think about this very quickly and then we'll end. Tuesday begins a new year, 2019. Forget about New Year's resolutions, please. Instead, rest in your already newness in Jesus Christ and the identity he's already given you. Discover a new gospel power for living and loving and serving others. So in conclusion, we've seen that God has given his son to us as a gift in his birth. Jesus was and is our human representative. He's our king. He's either going to repel you because you don't want to give up your own kingdom, or he's going to attract you by his grace because you realize he offers you new life and a new name. So may God draw us more deeply into the love of Christ this Christmas season. May you experience today your new identity as sons and daughters of God. Amen, and let us pray. Let us pray. Father, uh, thank you for sending Jesus, your Son, our Savior, our King. Change our hearts. May we love him and love his kingdom because he's given us a new name. May the new year be a time to practice our newness already that we have in Christ Jesus. I pray for those who are wrestling with these ideas this morning, feel a bit maybe uh, threatened by them, that you would work by your spirit upon uh, our hearts. Let us know afresh that we are loved, that your grace is for us. If we're locked in shame and sin, would you unlock us by your grace? Would you redeem us and save us? For all of us, uh, uh, plug us more deeply into the grace of Christ. Help us to love and serve everyone in all creation, because Jesus is king over all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.